Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. As you well know, we are working our way through Mark, and today we're in Mark 7, verses 24 through 37. Now, if you go and take a peek at these passages, I think you'll see them as a couple of the more challenging ones in terms of trying to understand what's going on, um, how this makes sense with Jesus. So I'm going to have Alan take us away and put this into context. Thanks, Christy. Yeah, we continue our journey through Mark's account of Jesus' ministry with two more of his miraculous deeds, both of them in Gentile territory, and that's pretty significant for our, mm-hmm. for our lesson today. It would seem that Jesus' public ministry has reached a critical stage with the opposition from the Jewish leaders mounting to a level that he feels the necessity to withdraw first to the region of Tyre and then to the Decapolis. Now, while both of those regions uh, bordered Jewish territory, they were definitely Gentile territory. Mm And so Mark tells us that when he came to the region of Tyre, which was to the north of Galilee, Jesus entered a house and did not want anyone to know that he was there. Uh, we can only speculate why that is. Perhaps, you know, again, you know, just, just a sense of respite from all that he was mm-hmm. doing and, and from the, especially from the opposition and the hostility he received from the Jewish leaders. Mm-hmm. But even there, even in Gentile territory, he could not escape notice. Uh, and apparently the reports about him were known even yeah. to the people of Tyre. You know, they knew about this uh, Jewish uh, healer. And so Jesus' first encounter in our lesson for today is with a woman who's identified as a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin mm-hmm. in Mark seven twenty six. Mm-hmm. Actually, the New Testament calls her Hellenus or Greek. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the translation of many of the English translate mm-hmm. in English language versions. I don't know why the RSV decided to make it Gentile um, because Greek and Gentile are somewhat synonymous in, in, in the Jewish mindset, but from the Greek perspective, they're definitely not. Right. <laughs> so the actual, um, the actual translation should be Greek. Greek should mm-hmm. be Greek. She was okay. she was Greek of Syrophoenician origin. Now you know, and and maybe I'm being too picky here, but you know, the word for Gentile is ethnos. Mm-hmm. The ethnoi are the Gentiles. Right, right. And, and here this word is Helene. So Mark tells us that her little daughter had an unclean spirit and that she immediately heard about him. And it's, to me, it's fascinating that, you know, here he's, he's in Tyre, you know, in the region of Tyre anyway, and he's trying to hide out. And apparently even there he can't go unnoticed. Right. And so she heard about him. And then she came and bowed down on his feet. And, and you know, I think it is it is interesting that that you know the, the person who come first encounters him in this in this non-jewish territory is a woman um, who comes to ask him about her daughter and so she she bowed at his feet and begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter now matthew tells the same story but in his account the woman approaches jesus by saying have mercy on me lord son of david which in and of itself implies that mm-hmm, she was approaching mm-hmm. him with faith. Here, in Mark's gospel, we're only told that she bowed down at his feet, and the verb is prospipto. Mm-hmm. And it, it implies some, you know, a sense of homage, but it, it's nothing 
that has anything particularly to do with faith. Mm -hmm. But then she begged him to help her. And, you know, again, that doesn't imply faith. It's just more of a a humility. You know, she recognizes that he's an important person and she is, is, is honoring him. But I think this will have significance in how we understand Jesus' reply to her in Mark's gospel. I am, you know, as I'm thinking about her, um, and and I hadn't thought about this before, but it's really the desperation of the mother, Mm -hmm. you know, and and, and a mother whose child is suffering. Sure. um, There's such a desperation and such a, I will... I will seek out anything to help my and child. I will, not let, yeah. I will not stop at anything. I will not let anything get in my which, way to find help for my child. Which is interesting because yeah. obviously in the Greco-Roman world, you still aren't approaching men, mm-hmm. uh, particularly foreign men. Um, mm-hmm. This is not a, a well, and, comfortable and space. And for a woman to approach a Jewish man, that yeah. was just Oh, not absolutely. Yeah. There's some pieces there that are... Are not explicit, but I think are are implicit in the in. A, yeah, in a I think we're meant dialogue. to understand that she she is uh, kind of courageously crossing some mm, some I social think so boundaries. Too. I yeah. think so too. Yeah. All right, let's keep going on. Then what happens? So in Mark's setting, Jesus replies, "Let the children first be filled, for it is not good to take the children's bread and give it to the dogs," which to most of our ears sounds like one of the harshest statements. Jesus it ever made. Awful. It Truly does. does. Yep. And, and even though you know, some have pointed out that the word for dogs, kunarion, is a diminutive form, and it could have referred to house dogs or pets. It was still an insult to yeah. call a, a non-Jewish person a dog. Right. Right. It, it's it's and that's I think that's why this is such a challenging passage. Is mm-hmm. it, we can't imagine that Jesus, full of love, would say this to right. somebody. So right. let's keep digging through it. Yeah. Now in you know, I know that this is sort of the quote-unquote traditional interpretation, but I do think that in Mark's account, what Jesus is doing is testing the woman to see if she has faith. Um, and only afterwards does the woman express her faith when she calls him Lord. And the NRSV says, sir, which in my mm-hmm. opinion obscures the significance of her response. And she says, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. So it would seem that Jesus understands the combination of her calling him Lord with Mm -hmm. her humble insistence that even a Gentile needs God's mercy as an expression of faith. And so he says, for saying that, you may go. The demon Mm -hmm. has left your daughter. Now, I think it's important to contrast the other place in the gospel tradition where this is found, and that's Matthew's gospel. Mm -hmm. So in Matthew's gospel, it's the disciples who say, send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. So I think it's important to note that. So I think the setting, you know, the fact that in Matthew's setting, the the woman has already professed her faith in him. She's called him Lord, son of David. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it's the disciples who are saying, send her away, it it sounds, you know, I have understood Matthew's version of this, that Jesus' statement about giving the children's food to the dogs was a test for the disciples, to see right, how they right. would respond to the idea of sharing the blessings of the kingdom with right. non-Jewish persons. Right. Now, um, and, and I think we have to understand a little bit of the broader context here. In the, in the gospel tradition, especially in Matthew's gospel, you know, there does seem, there are several statements where Jesus seems to reflect that 
his his primary ministry during right. his earthly ministry is to the Jewish right, people. Right. And so it it does seem if you look at it in light of Mar- Matthew's gospel that that Jesus is aware of a limitation on his personal ministry to the Jewish people at least in his in his lifetime. And so in Matthew's version Jesus actually explicitly says I was sent only to the lost right. sheep of the house of Israel. But the end result in the gospel tradition as a whole, is that this limitation on Jesus' ministry does not exclude the Gentiles from the blessings of salvation through the kingdom of God brought by Jesus. In the tradition as a whole, we find Gentiles displaying what Jesus commends as exemplary faith when they seek out Jesus, uh, uh, even as he seeks to withdraw. Right. <laughs> and right. here especially, he's, he's withdrawing in, in, in because of the Jews' rejection of Jesus and his open proclamation of the good news. And so he withdraws and Gentiles approach him with exemplary faith. <laughs> and so that's, I think we're meant to see right. the I, contrast there. I, I, I agree. I agree. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yes. And, and of course, we're all familiar with the story of the centurion that's found in exactly. uh, Matthew mm-hmm. and, and Luke and the statement that's found in Matthew and Luke that not even in Israel have I found such faith. Right. Other interactions with non-Jewish people includes probably the the Gerasene demoniac and the yes. Greeks who asked to seek see Jesus in yes, John chapter yes, 12. Yes, yes. A lot of people will put the Samaritans here, but you know, some, while, while Samaritans were sort of outcasts, they were sort of semi-Jewish. Right, they weren't. Right. They weren't fully on the exactly. on the outside. Exactly. I mean, obviously, Samaritans were not considered to be part of the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Right. Right. But I'm not sure. I, I wouldn't say that in that day and time that Samaritans were considered to be fully outside the Jewish circle. So, you know, this theme is going to this theme of of Gentiles approaching Jesus and displaying exemplary faith seems to be developed more in Matthew and Luke than it is in Mark, but it is implied by the stories that we have for today. So, it's not absent from Mark. It's just it's not as as much of a theme as we would find in in Matthew and Luke. Right, right, right. Um so, moving on, um you you mentioned this idea that Mark references um Jesus as Lord in there, this is a kind of an important piece that's left out of the translation, right? When we're, it is indeed. So tell us, tell yeah. us more. This is fascinating. Yeah, and and we have to understand that this is the only time in Mark's gospel that Jesus is addressed as Lord Curie. And this translation is found in the majority of English translations. The notable exceptions are the TEV, or the Good News Translation, and the New RSV. And apparently the editors of those versions felt that the woman would not have used Kyrie as an affirmation of faith, but rather as a term of respectful address. And it is used that way in the New Testament, but very rarely. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of the occurrences mm-hmm. of Kurios in I the see. New Testament mm-hmm. you know, have some kind of faith content about who Jesus is. Um, so uh, to me, I think if we follow the translation, Lord, it would imply an understanding of Jesus' identity on the part of this woman that uh, would go even beyond that of his own disciples. Mm-hmm. And perhaps this was the issue for the new RSV and the today's English version, you know, that they felt like how would a, how would a Syrophoenician woman right. be able to have this understanding? 
But to me, I think it fits right in with what we see elsewhere in the gospel I think, tradition. I think a little bit of, of the, the whole mystery Mark is presenting yeah. with the people, the disciples not really getting it, right. but these other people get it well, and are I think able about, to see I it. I think about the woman with the hemorrhages and how her example, her example of faith is, is meant to be an example for the synagogue ruler Jairus. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right. I think this makes sense within the context of Mark that this absolutely yeah. is an identifier. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, you know, um, Jesus in, in the gospel tradition as a whole, Jesus encounters with the Gentiles who displayed exemplary faith. Um, you know, are 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 a, a part of the gospel tradition. Now they don't, in and of themselves, sanction a Gentile mission. Uh, and I think that surely must have been a focus for the church for which Mark was writing the gospel, since he explains so many Jewish customs. We, we can I think we can presuppose that the church must have mm, been sure primarily was. non-Jewish. Mm-hmm. But I think these interactions between Jesus and these Gentiles who show exemplary faith do demonstrate Jesus' acceptance of Gentiles who express faith in him, and he, he doesn't hesitate to extend to them the blessings of the kingdom. I, and I think, you know, while, while again, you know, I don't want to minimize the harshness of the sound of what Jesus says to her in response to her request. Uh, you know, this is this is unusual. This is the only time we mm-hmm. find this in the gospel tradition. At the same time, you know, it's not that out of character with some of the ways that Jesus responded to the Jewish requests for him to work signs and work mm-hmm. miracles. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, you know, I think we have to take into account where Jesus is in his ministry. You know, he has been thronged by these crowds seeking healing, and yet they don't really, right. you know, have an understanding of who he is. They don't really right. have um, a faith that goes beyond the surface level. Right. And so perhaps, you know, we, we're meant, we should see this, this harsh statement as reflecting something of where Jesus was after dealing with, you know, the throngs of Jewish right. people who responded to him in that way. Right. Well, and I think, you know, I always think about the writer and thinking about Mark. Mark is including this for a reason. Mm-hmm. What? Why is Mark including this story? If he's trying to shape Jesus in one way, mm-hmm. he can leave this story out. Sure. Or he can tell sure. it in a different way. So why this way? And I think you're right. Um, I think it, it really is uh, reflecting that whole piece of who Jesus is mm-hmm. and, and, and that people were looking at him as just a miracle worker. I mean, I, I think we, we've seen already in Mark's gospel that faith is essential for the, for the proper approach to Jesus. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've seen it with reference to the disciples that a lack of understanding of who Jesus is is a, a serious obstacle to his ministry. You it know, is. And we, 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 it s- is. You know, we saw the place where in, in Nazareth he could do, he could not do many deeds of power there because of their unbelief. Their right? unbelief, right. right. I will push back a little bit. I, you I, can push I, back. I, <laughs> thank you. I, I do think I do think that the gospel writers arranged and and maybe even to some extent selected their materials, but I would say that I don't think that they they had the kind of freedom to just um, either wholesale leave out chunks of the gospel tradition or wholesale create new chunks of the gospel tradition. I think that my my perception and you know this is something that I've also 
specialized in is the study right, of the historical right, Jesus. Right, so pay more attention to him. <laughs> well, no, I'm not, not saying that. I'm just saying from my, from my experience in working with yeah, this, my yeah. perception of the gospel tradition is that, you know, I think that we can say that the gospel writers were trying to be faithful to what was handed on to them right. by the gospel yeah. tradition, yeah. by those who passed it on in an oral form. So I think Mark would have been interacting with his source. We, we can see all over the gospels that the gospels, gospel writers don't hesitate to edit the material they get. Right and, right. To, and to shape right. it. Uh, whether they would completely leave something out that was in their source oh, or not, yeah, well, I'm not I, sure Probably that's not. Case. Probably yeah. not. But I, so maybe I need to reform what I said in, in terms of, but he is shaping it. And yes, he did he shape it this way in yes, particular. Yes, and, uh, and, and, and when we look at it compared to Matthew, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah, it yeah. has a unique shape. So it why does. does it have that shape? And, exactly. And what is Mark trying to communicate to his congregation? That's exactly. A, that's a, or his community. That's a, that's a, a fair question. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, Moving on, um, how does how does Jesus well? To and this? Jesus basically just responds for that, saying, "You may go. The demon has left your daughter." It's a, it's it's kind of an interesting statement because he doesn't even say, you know, commend her for her faith like he does, you know, in Matthew and Luke. But that may be a marking thing, you know, it may be one of those things where you know we've said before um, in Mark's gospel. You have to get to the cross and the resurrection to really understand who Jesus is and mm-hmm. to really have the kind of faith that, that Mark is, is trying to get people to come to. But I think here it's important to note that Jesus simply speaks the word and brings wholeness to the child. Mm-hmm. And the story concludes with the notice that she went home, found the child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. So, you know, Jesus has affected the cure. Yeah. 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 All right. Then we move to a whole different episode in this. So, uh, in in preaching-wise... I think you could probably deal with one or the other if you don't want to deal with both necessarily. I would, I would, I would do that. I would, I, if there's a, if there's a, a, a theme in one or the other, I would, I would probably pick one or the other. Yeah. I wouldn't necessarily do both. Yeah. 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 Well, anyway, so tell us about the second story. Well, the second episode's about Jesus healing a deaf mute in the Decapolis and is only found in Mark's gospel. And and let me ask Alan. My assumption is because you're in a Decapolis that this person is likely non-Jewish. Likely. There was some Jewish presence in yeah. the Decapolis, but it was, it was majority uh, Gentile territory and even, even, you know, perhaps even Greek. I mean, because this, mm-hmm. the, the, the Decapolis was um, settled by the Hellenistic, right. um, um, uh, basically the heirs of, yes, of, exactly. of Alexander the Great's empire who, um, who founded all kinds of, of Greek cities, basically all over the, the, the Mediterranean world. Well, and I'm pretty sure that that's one of the areas too, that Roman soldiers then would retire to. Oh, so yeah, they would yeah. stuff, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, non-Jewish folks there. Let's just well, yeah. And, and during, yeah. during this era, which would have been the Roman era, right. Um, um, there would have been Roman um, soldiers yeah, in these cities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. So um, uh, Mark introduces the story by saying that he returned from the region of Tyre and went by way of Sidon towards the Sea of Galilee, or literally he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. Now, this statement is almost infamous among New Testament mm-hmm. historians because Sidon is not in any way, shape, or form on the way to the Sea of Galilee <laughs> from Tyre. <laughs> yes, and that's one that you. you that's one that, of course, I, I, I've I've learned as well. Once you pick up your map, you're like, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't it compute work. at first, and and I think perhaps 
the translation towards, which is only found in the Common English Bible and in the New RSV, attempts to resolve this problem. Another attempt at resolution we find in the King James Version, the New King James Version, because they follow the majority text. They follow the Textus Receptus, Mm -hmm. which would have been the Greek text that was available in 1611. And so uh, the, the reading they have is, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through oh, the midst they, of the region works, of the Decapolis maybe. to the Sea of Galilee. So it's a lot, it's a lot more vague. Vague, right. right. And, and this does reflect a variant in the Greek text found in the majority of manuscripts, <laughs> which means it would, have been the, it would have been in the Greek text that the King James translators had access to. I'm, I'm laughing. Obviously, they've noticed that this doesn't make sense. Right. <laughs> Obviously, of course, of course. The scribes were correct. This was a, a scribal correction. Yeah, right. Yeah, definitely. Right. And, of course, the problem is anybody who knows the geography of this area would know that Sidon was 25 miles north of Tyre, while the Sea of Galilee was 40 miles southeast of Tyre. And so this has prompted many New Testament scholars to conclude that Mark had no clear understanding of the region and may have not even ever been to this region. That, that's a good point. That's I, a good point. I, you know, I, I must confess, I've never felt the need to come to that conclusion myself. Uh, you know, it, yeah. it does seem that Mark, I mean, tra- tra- in the church tradition, Mark is John Mark who is present in Jerusalem in the book of Acts. Um, truthfully, you know, factually, we, we, we can't know. Exactly. We can't know. Exactly. Uh, it seems that by the time Mark is writing the gospel, he may be in Rome, and, and you know, uh, the tradition is that he's recording the preaching of Peter. We don't know about that either, but, but he's definitely um, writing this for a community uh, in a non-Jewish world, I would say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So some people think Mark didn't know the geography of, of the region. But, you know, the fact that Jesus was trying to avoid any encounters with the Jewish leaders yes. could make it plausible that Jesus would take a route that would I, avoid I, I, Galilee. Exactly, and that works. Part of the problem, however, is that the geography of this part of Galilee meant that there was very likely no direct route from either Tyre or Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. You would almost have to go through Syria if you if you went if you went through Sidon to get to the Sea of Galilee, mm-hmm. you would almost have to go so far north as to go through Syria and come right, around right. by way of the Decapolis to get there. Right. And that may be why the re- the the reading of the King James version, the reading of that right. Greek text, reflected that idea that he went right. he went from Tyre and Sidon through the Decapolis to to Galilee to the Sea of Galilee because that was the only really those were the only roads that you could get you could right. you could take right. You know, frankly, I'm not sure we'll ever have enough information to solve this particular problem. But I just wanted to note, this is is an almost infamous uh, passage in 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 Mark's gospel. It is, it is. Well, and you you also have to be aware of the geography of this area to recognize that there would have been no way to have a road from Tyre to the Sea of Galilee because it would cross a couple of mountain ranges and, you know, it just... exactly. It just wouldn't have worked. Exactly. And I think... You know, on an, on an aside, we often forget about geography. Sure, sure. So, so then Jesus goes to the to the Decapolis, which, as we said, was the region. It was the region to the east of the Sea of Galilee, and had been been founded basically in the Hellenistic era uh, during the during the centuries three hundred BCE to the first century. 
And, um, you know, it was, there were 10 cities, basically Decapolis means 10 cities. And there were these 10 cities that had been founded by the, um, the, um, um, heirs of, of Alexander's empire. Mm -hmm. Now, Again, despite what Jesus had said about his ministry being limited to Jewish people, here as well, the Gentiles seek him out. Uh, Mm -hmm. Mark simply says, they brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And we're sort of just left to wonder who the they they? are. (laughs) I I love that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I think, however, we must assume that they were Gentile residents of the Mm -hmm. Decapolis. And so... You know, apparently this man has some friends. And the Greek word is moigilalan, which is variously translated. It could hardly speak in the Common English Bible, was unable to speak intelligibly in the Phillips Bible, in the Phillips translation of the New Testament, had an impediment in his speech, is the translation that carries on from the King James Mm. Version to the American Standard Version to the Revised Standard Version to the New Revised Standard Version, which highlights the fact that all of these later translations are actually revisions of the King James Version. Most of our listeners may not know that. That even the New Revised Revised Standard Version, if you you take the time to read the introduction, it it will tell you this is a revision of the King James Version. I think think that's interesting, too. And when I I think, um, especially modern readers... An impediment in his speech is quite a, a long way from could hardly speak. Yeah, well, and and so probably the reason why an impediment in his speech was adopted in the in the English Bible tradition like that was because you know it says later that his tongue was loosened and he was able to speak oh, clearly. Yeah, yeah. So th- th- I think they're they're doing some they're they're putting that together and and trying. But moigalalon is an un, is a is an unusual word. It's not one that's used a lot, mm-hmm. and so that's the reason why there's mm-hmm. so much. Okay. Uh, I think variety in variety. how it's translated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking partly in terms of two and the just in how we think of a speech impediment. So let's move on. So how does Jesus respond? So interestingly, Mark tells us that Jesus took him aside in private. Now, you know, we've seen this desire for privacy before with the raising of Jairus's daughter after she dies. But it is unusual in Jesus healing miracles in the gospel tradition. Usually they're done just out in full right. sight mm-hmm. of everybody mm-hmm. who's around. Right. Now, another unusual aspect of this story is that Jesus uses some of the practices that were common to healers of his day in placing his fingers in the man's ears, spitting, touching his tongue, looking up to heaven and sighing. And this may be perhaps due to the fact that the one, the ones who brought the man to Jesus begged him to lay his hand on him. And perhaps they were expecting him to use those practices. We are right, in we are right. in Greek territory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, nevertheless, it is the simple command, ephatha, or be opened, along with Jesus looking up to heaven and sighing that affects the cure. Now the fact that Mark tells us that Jesus sighed is unusual. Mm-hmm. We don't really hear that elsewhere. In other contexts, especially in the Greek world, it signified drawing in spiritual power to affect a healing, which would reflect more of a magical, more of the magical practices of the healers of that day. I'm not convinced that's the case here. You know, there are instances where Jesus seems to be wearied by the constant clamoring of the crowd for healing. That could be a mm-hmm. possibility, aside from weariness. There are other instances where he seems to be moved by the prevalence of human suffering. 
And so perhaps he sighs because of the just the, right. the depth of human suffering. Right. But another possibility, I think, I, I don't think we should dismiss the possibility that Jesus was praying, but those around him simply mm-hmm. per, you know, perceived him as sighing mm-hmm. because he, he did look up to heaven. And so um, I think in the context of the Gospels, you know, in, in, in other texts mm-hmm. where, that, where, that, where that is used, we could see that as more of a magical pr- practice. But oh, I think in the, oh, in the context oh, of the Gospel mm-hmm. tradition, with, when we see what Jesus does and how Jesus heals people, I don't think we should dismiss the possibility that Jesus was praying. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I'm, I'm looking, I, I'm looking at this word, and, and I'm, the Greek then for that is sigh. My mind keeps asking, you know, I, how is sigh used in the tradition of healers? You know, to sigh would would be a way of of sort of, um, as I said, drawing in spiritual okay. power to okay. affect a healing. Okay. Okay. You know, that that was something that was found in the Greek tradition. Okay. Uh, as well as as well as the the saliva, yeah. saliva was something in the Greek Greek tradition that was conceived co- to have healing properties. Right. Um, and so again, you know, it's it's unusual that Mark mm-hmm. tells us this story about him healing this this man uh, in this way because normally he just speaks the word. He just speaks it. Yeah. Again, I I, I wonder if the reason was that. Jesus was aware of his setting. You know, that these were people that, that, you know, that, that may have had some expectations. And so he does a simplified version. Now we have to, I think we have to understand this by no means comes close to some of the really out there magical practices of the day. Right. Some of the healers, some of the exorcists of the day, we, we have the text, we have papyri texts well, and we read that some of show, Acts, even, well, but you know? yeah, but we, we have the papyri texts that show, I mean, they went to, they went through all these incantations. Okay. They would name every deity that they knew of. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and they would do all kinds of, I mean, I think we can think also of the prophets of Baal and with Elijah, Mount right. Carmel. Yeah, you know, they yeah, would absolutely. go into yeah, this yeah, kind yeah. of frenzy kind mm-hmm. of, kind of behavior so jesus isn't doing that at all you know at best he's accommodating himself to the expectations of these people by by doing a few simple gestures which is a really interesting kind of outreach if you will to kind of the gentile population Mm. i mean i think that's an interesting an interesting place to to uh explore i guess Mm -hmm. put it that way yeah the fact that he was willing to sort of meet them yeah uh, yeah Yeah. yeah yeah All right, so keep going. What happens? Well, again, the cure is immediate and complete. Mark tells us in verse 35, immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And so, you know, uh, once again, you know, I mean, this is, the, this is what we see. Uh, that's, the, that's the norm in Mark's gospel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, right after that then, Jesus ordered them to tell no one, but even though he does yes. this, Mark again reports that the more <laughs> Jesus instructed people to be silent, the more they proclaimed the good news about what he was doing. And, you know, perhaps we're meant to see um, that, this command to silence, you know, there, there's there's no way that Jesus could have actually expected them to be silent. <laughs> no. And so well, in, it may have been, in fact, the literary device on Mark's part to demonstrate the fact that the mighty deeds of Jesus were so extraordinary that they could not be kept hidden. Well, okay, okay. So here's this guy, right? And he can't, he, he can't speak. He can't hear. <laughs> right. And now all of a sudden he can speak and hear. I mean... What's he going to say to his what, friends, uh, right? His well, family. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like, huh... What happened to him? I mean, it, it, it would be impossible, really, to keep right. quiet about what they can see. Well, 
what happened to this guy now that we can understand him? Right. And, uh, yeah, this was something that just didn't happen every day. <laughs> it, it, you know, yeah. it, it wasn't an everyday occurrence, right? Yeah. It was going to be on the news. Right, right, <laughs> <Sorry>. definitely. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, yeah, I think, I think you know, as we, as we get through, get, as we get into Mark's gospel, we have to realize that, you know, the commands to silence that we find in, in the gospel tradition, you know, it, this may have been a literary device on the part of the gospel writers to just simply call attention to just how really uh, extraordinary what Jesus right, was doing was. Right. Yeah. Um, and so, what what happens next? Well, we Mark then reports the response of the crowd. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, "He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak." And and it's interesting because these commendations of Jesus come from the Hebrew Bible, especially Isaiah thirty five five and six. And and I think to me that's something of a surprise in Gentile territory hearing people who are not necessarily Jewish, you know, recite the Hebrew Bible. Um, Isaiah 35, 5 through 6 describes the Messianic age, and this commendation in Mark's gospel implies that the promise of the Messianic age or the kingdom of God was being fulfilled in Jesus' ministry. It's hard for us to really imagine that, that people who have no you know, no understanding of the Jewish tradition, no understanding of Jewish expectations. You know, they're not going to the synagogue. They're 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 Greeks. They're Gentiles. It's hard to 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 see that they would have been able to articulate this themselves. Mm-hmm. And so, a couple of options would be that perhaps Mark is responsible for basically you know putting putting this on the lips of the Gentile audience, or perhaps it was those who passed along the gospel tradition. Because we've seen that before. We've seen the way the gospel tradition is shaped by Hebrew Bible texts that were significant mm-hmm. uh, for, for the Jewish people. So uh, this may be another example of that mm-hmm, here. Mm-hmm. And so... How do you put this in the, the, the broad context then of, of Mark? Yeah, well, you know, this passage, along with the story of the Gerasene demoniac, constitute the only encounters between Jesus and Gentiles in Mark's mm-hmm. gospel. These are the only ones. And again, I think we have to resist the temptation to read Mark in light of the more explicit statements about Matthew right. and Luke. There's some very explicit statements. I mean, Luke's gospel starts out exactly. with the rejection at Nazareth. Right, right. And the whole point of that is that that the mission of Jesus is right, going to right. extend beyond the limits of the Jewish people. Um, and even Matthew, which has more of a statement about Jesus a couple of times, says, says something to the effect of, you know, uh, um, you know, his ministry was limited to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Mm-hmm. But yet at the same time, Matthew's gospel has very notable indications that Jesus expects that the good news is going to go beyond the confines of the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mark's gospel isn't quite so explicit about that. All we have are these these episodes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We do, however, have one statement and it gets it gets overlooked because it's not at the end of the gospel we're so we're so so used to matthew's ending of the gospel yes, you know yes. with the great commission right, right, go right. into all the world and make disciples you know etc oh, etc right, right. et we're, we're, we're used to having that great commission found at the end of the gospel mm-hmm. well in matthew in mark's gospel 
there's not a great commission right. like that. But what you find is in Mark 13, 10, when, when, when Jesus is talking about the coming of the Son of Man and the trials and tribulations that are going to be, that the people are going to go through as a result of, or in connection with that, he says, the good news must first be proclaimed to all the nations. So there is a great commission, so to speak. There right. is a statement about the good news going to mm-hmm, all the nations mm-hmm. in Mark's gospel. But I think we have to see that in comparison with Matthew and Luke, that theme is a little less prominent mm-hmm. in Mark's gospel. And maybe it would have been because Mark was writing to a Gentile community of faith. They had they would have known that the gospel had already gone to the Gentiles, right? Right, <laughs> so. right. Well, and I just can't help but thinking of, you know, Mark... I, I keep going back to the disciples not getting it, and yet mm-hmm. these people do get yeah. it. You do see that kind of contrast mm-hmm. between the uncomprehending response of the people that should have gotten it right. and the really astounding and exemplary faith on the part of people that you wouldn't that expect, wouldn't expect it, from. it from. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you. We'll be back and talk a little about the Reformation. Thank you. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to let Christy uh, give us uh, some insight into how the Reformers dealt with these uh, stories. So, Christy, tell us what you found. Sure. And I'm going to focus mostly today on, or uh, probably entirely, on um, the Syrophoenician woman, only because this becomes a really big deal for the Reformers, and it's really talked about a lot. The reality is is they're, they're struggling trying to find out why Jesus is responding to this woman with mm. such harsh language. And it very much um, becomes becomes kind of a, a hot point um, uh, for, for the reformers. And so I looked at a lot of Calvin's commentaries, but there's also some pieces that we can pull out of this um, from Luther's Bondage of the Will, um, 1520. Um, but uh, let's push to first just to the themes that, that Calvin pulls out. And, and one of the... Sp- first themes is this kind of duality in Christ. So this idea, Christ fully human and fully divine, um, is in this discussion with this woman. And so there's this, um, it, it was this idea of, well, well, this passage shows a human limitation and believing that it was not his time yet to divulge the salvation of all, um, and that not his time to actually help this woman because he had been called to this more limited space. And so that was, again, this human Jesus doing his human mission and putting back that divine mission, which is later on. Mm. However... So the, so the human mission was the one that was limited to the Jews. Exactly. The divine mission was the one that was to the whole world. Exactly. Wow. So that's one of the themes that comes out in Calvin is this kind of making sense of this these two natures mm. of Christ. Mm. And so that kind of response is he's not sure at this point um, in this human life, whether it's it's time yet. And of course we learned that it, it is, but mm-hmm. um, that was the first theme I, I pulled out. The second one, um, which actually takes us into um, a much greater discussion is implicit faith versus explicit faith. So one of the themes in Calvin's theology is relationship between explicit faith and implicit faith. In other words, we can have an inkling about who God is, 
even if we have not steeped in a tradition. So you can see this throughout the institutes. You know, he'll talk about, well, God, the creator of the world, is is present. We can we mm-hmm. can have a sense that it exists, but not necessarily know fully who God is. How, so it's natural theology. It's a natural you know, theology. Yeah. But the question is, then how are you saved? In other words, um, can this woman be saved? if she does not actually know who God is. And that's a really big Hmm. turning point. And this is the big debate amongst the reformers, particularly our friend, Michael Cervetus, who we've met before. Remember, he's he's a presence during Calvin's life. He speaks several languages fluently. He's a physician. He's actually got some some really great ideas in that realm, but he's also interested in faith. I mean, he's the Renaissance man. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, <laughs> I've, I've introduced him before. I always kind of giggle when I think about him because he was just a bigger-than-life personality. And, and yet he was just a thorn in the side of all of the mainstream reformers. Mm. And he, he had such a presence that people listened to him. And so, you know, actually, you know, he's put to death by Calvin, and Calvin gets his bad rap for it. But the thing is, they all wanted him gone. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it was Theodore Beza that actually even wrote a, a defense of Calvin of, hey, we all wanted him gone. Mm-hmm. And so stop complaining about it. But anyway, this comes to this comes to a big deal because this, this probably 20-year discussion between Calvin and um, Michael Cervetus are going back and forth. And one of the big pieces here is this salvation. And Cervantes says, look, you you could just be saved. God could just, it's kind of the spiritualist idea. You don't really have to know who God is. Wow. Faith can just emerge. And he it used- just drops salvation on you. Exactly. And he used this as as a piece saying, she really? didn't know anything. Wow. She, she you know, Faith, faith was just dropped on her. And Calvin says, no, 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 because she had the knowledge of the law and the prophets first. Therefore, when Alan talked about her identify of Jesus as Lord, suggested she knew who he was. So the big thing for, for Calvin is that faith is always tied to knowledge. You mm-hmm. don't get faith without knowledge. Mm. But for Cervetus, eh, it can just appear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, and, and Calvin would have been working from a harmony of the Gospels. And so, you yes. know, in Matthew's account, she professes her faith in exactly. Jesus as Lord and Son of David from the very beginning. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I, I, I think I think Servetus is, is reading too much in there. I mean, <laughs> you know, I think it's more likely that she had heard the stories about Jesus that were circulating around because why does, he, why does she seek him out? You know, she yeah. seeks him out because she knows, you know, oh, Jesus is here. She's got some kind of knowledge there. Yeah. <laughs> I would be with Calvin on that one. <laughs> I, 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 well, exactly. Exactly. And you can start to see how this kind of, you can just have spontaneous faith with no knowledge could be a problem for the institutional church mm-hmm. and why someone like Servetus was such a threat to the church. Interesting. Um, interesting. And of course, in, in, Calvin's, um, in Calvin's view of the world, where in, in our Presbyterian background too. This, our knowledge is so central, though. You know. Well, and we're central. talking about revelation here. Yeah, there has yeah. to be some kind of revelation from God, right? right. Not and and well, beyond beyond the natural revelation right. in well, creation. And right? the issue here too is in part of where does the faith come from, and does the faith itself come from her? And are saying is this this is her, 
or indeed, does mm-hmm. it come from Jesus? Does it come from above? And I think that's a big, that's, where, yeah. from where does faith come? Right. Is it totally the work of a sovereign God? Exactly. And we, we, or is it the human free will? <laughs> exactly. Which, dun, ding, ding, takes us to another piece that we see in Calvin. And another, another theological point that comes out of this is the idea that God is testing the woman is a way that this passage has been read. And I apologize. This is, I'm going to turn to more Luther here than, than Calvin. And Luther's thought, God has two natures that are seen in these places. So there's this God who is wrathful and this God who is loving. And, and so in our modern sensibilities, we talk much more about the loving God. But for Luther, and I think this comes out of the medieval tradition a lot, there's still this idea of this angry God and this Mm -hmm. whole sense of that actually you kind of have to experience that in order to realize how depraved you were. So this this goes into Mm. Calvin as well in order to fully accept that God's sovereignty and that God's in charge and that... Um, and thus to have the faith ex- to, to ex- experience exactly, salvation. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I, I think that's interesting because, you know, in, in contemporary reform theology, I think we would say that whatever wrath there is is an expression of God's love. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, right, right. So, and Luther actually kind of grows in this. So you, you see a kind of, you know, we, we always take these people and we kind of, pin an idea on him and we don't allow them a chance to grow and but anyway earlier on um, he, he says this and I think this is good at times he does so in grace act as a kind father so God does in grace ask as a kind father temporally at times he does so in wrath as a stern judge eternally now when God seizes man man is by nature weak and disheartened because he does not know whether God is taking him in hand, out of anger, or in grace. Hmm. So you see that that. Ooh. Yeah. I, I I can't go with that uh, with that image of God myself. I, I can't. I mean, it's almost a schizophrenic God. It it is. It <laughs> is, and and of course. And it, and to say that kindness is temporal and. Uh-huh. And, and wrath is eternal. Mm-hmm. That, that you know, I, yeah, I would I would reverse that. God's loving kindness is the, what's eternal, and His wrath is is is, right. is you know known as the strange work of God. Exactly, but 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 this is part of who Luther is, and part mm. now Luther. That's why later, I'm a Presbyterian, Luther, not a Lutheran. Yeah, Luther's <laughs> later stuff, right, will come to emphasize God as revealed in Scripture, and so they're like, look, God really isn't revealed in Scripture as overall an angry God, but he, he picks up with this, this becomes a, a big issue. And this, this text, as he is responding, as Jesus is responding is by Luther interpreted as the angry God. Wow. Yeah. As an example of God's anger. Wow. And, um, so it's, you know, I've kind of already hit on that this is whole idea of the nature of God. And that Luther deals with, as I said, early in this whole um, bondage of the will. Famous tract, really against Erasmus, who says, look, you know, you are, you are free. You're free to seek your salvation, and it's out there. But Luther says, but no, you are, you are bound. And so it's really the beginning thoughts of whether God is all sovereign who God is, and that, that sovereignty of God is picked up even more by Calvin and becomes kind of the, 
the main emphasis of God's personality, the, the, the one that kind of rules, if you will, through it. And I said, God is sovereign, then God's decided who's saved. Um, and so we're back to that question of, mm-hmm. you know, does salvation come from the sovereign act of God or does it come by the freedom that you have to choose? Exactly. Yeah. So this, this, be, this, this little passage that we kind of wow. talked about today is one of the touch points because they don't know really what to do with it and to make sense of it. Um, mm. And and so, so it sounds like some people want to emphasize that that this woman demonstrates free will, and some people want to emphasize no, you know, Jesus is is reflecting the sovereign God. Yeah, yeah. Now I want to turn that right back to Calvin because I don't want to kind of leave us at this kind of sense that, oh, well, the sovereign God and she's, yeah, but rather uh, uh, this, how this is ultimately um, understood. But Calvin, Calvin says, look, um, this, the, the children, and he looks at the children as being Abraham's children mm-hmm. and therefore the, the Jews, mm-hmm. um, but looks at the, the crumbs at the table reflect the promise of Christ that are embedded into the law and the prophets. Um, oh, really? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> this part of the story is essential for you can't know about salvation in Christ if you have no knowledge. You have to know. So the knowledge has to come from these foreshadowings that are scattered throughout the Hebrew Bible. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that one I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't be so keen on going with Calvin on. <laughs> no, no, but I... I I, what I love about this and with Luther and Calvin is how, you know, their theology is challenged by, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're trying to make sense of everything and, and there's these little kinks in it. And, and you have to remember, you know, Calvin and his, his systematic theology is one of the first. Mm-hmm. And so when you think about that and you think about what he did do, it's pretty awesome. And, and some of the, places that are he's tripped up in here give us things to address later on as we as we get maybe a different start from a different starting point or we know more about our gospel well and i i think i mean as reformed christians we still make the sovereignty of god's grace our starting point but we don't hold that in such a way that it excludes the freedom of a person to respond to god's grace Right, and we see those two as as right. reflected in Scripture. Both of those those ideas are reflected in right. Scripture, and so we hold them together. And I think also we are able to um, get rid of some of the baggage of the 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 evil world, the evil control that we still see mm-hmm. in Luther's thought. Yeah, well, the, and yeah, the whole idea that that if we are fallen, we are sinful, and if we are sinful, then we are, and, and you know, to use the language of Dort, we are totally depraved, right. which means we cannot choose right. faith right. on our right. own. And yet, when you read the, when you read the Institutes, you see places where Calvin says you, you have to, you have to respond. Uh, you know, I think in, in our day, you know, the effort... Is the same. I mean, we, we, it's what Calvin and Luther were trying to do. They were trying to be faithful to Scripture, and I think what we're, you know, it's like you said. I mean, they they brought out the the sort of the touch points that needed to be addressed, and in in our day, you right. know, we we've come to different conclusions about that, and that's okay. Yeah, exactly, 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 and and that's okay. And I think that's the part that we that that we struggle with. I mean, I, I think mm-hmm. I think our tradition we think it's okay. I, I think there's other traditions that don't right. think it's okay. Think and I think we have to we have to follow Calvin lockstep. I think that's a good maybe a good place to stop and we'll come back. Mm-hmm.
everybody. We are back. And I was thinking about this passage um, when we were preparing it, and I don't like it because it seems so harsh. I don't want to think about it or talk about it because it doesn't seem like something Jesus would say. And despite that we've gone through all the exegesis and we've gone through all the reformers and how they responded to this passage, I still think it's worth talking about, especially in today's world when we don't have uh, deep Bible readers and people read this and they say, well, Jesus would say this and I can't believe that. And obviously it could throw to somebody a whole loop in their faith. So how, how do we work with this passage pastorally? Well, very carefully, I think. Um, you know, the reality is that there are some harsh statements that Jesus makes. You know, uh, even in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, he says, you know, um, if you greet only those who greet you, what do you do more than the Gentiles? Which sounds like a put-down. You know, and there's several places like that in Ma- in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus sort of speaks rather negatively about the Gentiles, and 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 you do wonder. I mean, you know, wait, what is this? Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, and, and I, I think part of what I would have to say is is part of the answer there is. You know, Jesus is working in a Jewish context, and he, you know, that would have been the language that they would have used, Mm -hmm. you know, and so perhaps Jesus is adopting their language. Um, It's hard for me to think that Jesus really thought of Gentiles as beyond the pale of God's mercy. That just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me either. And um, and yet, here are these, here's this harsh language, you know, Mm -hmm. and yes, she does. I mean, I suppose... I suppose, you know, one of the traditional interpretations is, is well, it just shows her faith, you know, mm-hmm. that she kept pushing that we should never give up. Um, I'm not sure that's the intent of the passage. Well, I, I think it is, actually. And, you know, um, we've seen this before in Mark's gospel. You know, we have this woman who, you know, she, you know, in Jewish society, women were simply property. I mean, mm-hmm. they were non-entities. And yet we have this woman who comes to Jesus. He, she's suffering from this physical ailment. And, you know, she touches him and he, she is mm-hmm. healed. And, you know, her faith then becomes the example for the synagogue ruler, Jairus, whose daughter dies right. while he's trying to get Jesus to come heal her. Right. Um, that's not something i mean we've heard we've heard those stories so many times it's hard for us to see how shocking that would have been in jewish society mm-hmm. that yeah. would have not yeah. been the true, case true and, and again so we're talking about mark and mark is writing for probably a gentile community and you know one of the key features one of the real challenges in the first century church was the question what does a Jewish gospel have to do Do, with Greeks and Romans? Right. And vice versa, what does a gospel that is offering salvation and new life to Greeks and Romans and Gentiles really have to do with Torah-observant Jews? Right. 
because the, the, there was not much of a of a any kind of conjunction, any kind of relationship between those two worlds. There was kind of a strong divide between yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. You know, a good the, point. the the Greeks looked down on them on the Jewish people as barbarians. Mm-hmm. The Romans saw them as uncultured, uh, and the Jewish people looked down on everybody else as you know dogs because they were unclean. Mm-hmm, and and so, um, but we're dealing with churches. Across the spectrum of of you know the Greco Roman world, mm-hmm. that would have been very likely, I think every church would have had a mixed Jewish and Gentile population, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so that becomes a very live issue. And I think I think Mark is trying to point out, you know, sometimes you know the, God uses the most unlikely people which mm-hmm. by the way is a theme that you find yes, in the Hebrew true. Bible that is very true right, right? Mm-hmm. um so um uh you know it's not Esau the firstborn it's Jacob exactly. the secondborn right, right. And, and that's just one example yeah Moses the it's, stutterer and you it's, know it's it's not it's not the the handsome tall oldest son of Jesse it's mm-hmm. the it's the sh- small short ruddy um, right, uh, son right. David, you know the youngest Exa- son exactly. of David, of Jesse yeah, David, yeah. you know that Samuel is to choose, and so you know this is a theme that you find in the Hebrew Bible, and so I think I think I think Mark is trying to point out, you know that. Even in the Gentiles, because right, right, he's writing for Gentile community, primary, probably primarily Gentile community. Even among the Gentiles, there were people who responded in a way that was unexpected, right. and that, and, and I think, I think that becomes then almost a, um, I think in a Gentile community like Marx, people would have just clung to that, but, even yeah. though, yeah, yeah, even though true. the language is harsh, you know, she would have become a hero, right. Of the faith for them because she was able to say, "Yes, Lord." First of yes. all, yeah, exactly. which nobody else in the gospel says, true. right? Even the dogs can eat the crumbs at the children's table, mm-hmm. which was an amazing statement of faith, really. Yeah, and yeah. and so um, um, maybe. You know, yeah, part of it, I think, is our modern ears are a little bit sensitive to this. Yeah, yeah. You know, as I said before, uh, speaking of a Gentile as a dog would have been an insult. And yet, you On know, the other hand, as you're saying, you know, she would have understood. She wouldn't have been on. I mean, yes, it was an insult, but yet that would have been her life in right. many, many ways. You know she what I mean? She knew that Jewish people looked down on her. Yeah, she knew that Jewish people looked down on her and, and she knew that her daughter was possessed. That put her outside, even more outside of the community. And so... She wasn't going to let that cultural the, stigma yeah. keep her from seeking out uh-huh, healing for her daughter. Uh-huh. Yeah, Which again, demonstrates just the tenacity of her faith. I right. mean, she becomes an example for faith. Exactly. Now, I think there's also something to the way Matthew presents this story mm-hmm. because in, as I said before, in Matthew's gospel, you know, she comes to him just saying, Lord, help she me, right Lord, away. have mercy, yes. Lord, son of David. You she know, comes at that she faith confesses right faith right away. Mm-hmm. So there's no sense of testing her in that respect. That doesn't make much sense out of Matthew's right, account. Right. And that's why I think the statement about the disciples asking him to send her away is crucial because I think that means in, in, in the reading of Matthew's gospel, then it becomes a test more for the disciples exactly. to see if they are going to be able to comprehend mm-hmm. the fact that this 
uh, essentially Jewish kingdom right. of God is going, going to bring this. blessings that are going mm-hmm. to extend to the Gentiles. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, so that's a different, that's a, that's, it's different in Matthew. Yeah. Well, and uh, so most of us, you know, we read the, the New Testament with eyes and ears that have been shaped by Paul. Paul's already worked this all out theologically. You know right, that true. that that the that that the uh, that the gospel may have originated in the, in a Jewish context, but it it was right. meant you know, from the very beginning to to go to all the families of the earth. Mm-hmm. You know, and Paul quotes that in Galatians. You right. know that that this was an evidence that that God was going to going to bless all peoples. So so we we come at this from eyes and ears that have already worked that out because right, Paul has true. already worked that out. That's true. But I think I think we have to understand that Jesus' disciples, even in Ma- even in Matthew, although Matthew in Matthew the disciples aren't as dull and <laughs> lacking of understanding as they are <laughs> right. in Mark's gospel, even yet I think I think that would have been a challenge for them. I think so too. And you're right, they're not as bad as Mark, but they're still thinking in terms of the context of just the Jewish Yeah. People. I mean we see this in the book of Acts when Peter goes exactly. to Cornelius, exactly. the, the Roman centurion, and preaches the gospel in response yes. to a vision that he has. And, and you know, this is something that's astonishing even to Peter and his friends exactly. who go with him. They're, they're blown away by this. They don't mm-hmm. expect the Spirit to come on these people and for them to be converted, right? Right. More than that, when they go back to Jude- Jerusalem, they get called on the carpet. Exactly. Because, again, exactly. this isn't sort of the paradigm for for even you know right. even after Jesus death and resurrection there are part of the early mm-hmm. church is still stuck in that paradigm Absolutely. of no this is this is this is you know the kingdom of god is for the jews mm-hmm. and uh-huh. so you know, I think we have to put this all into the general context of what was going on in the early church yeah, in that day. Yeah. I, I agree. I agree and I think that when you do that all of a sudden, those words aren't quite as, as harsh yeah, to hear, and yeah. it, they make sense within the context of the day. Now, that still leaves us with a very harsh, a kind still, of a harsh story, a harsh-sounding harsh story. story in Mark's gospel. It, but, but I think the way it would have functioned in the church... Uh, that Mark w- in, right. in, was, was addressing is that the woman would have, would have been sort of a hero of faith to them. Yeah, I agree. I agree, and I think that's, you know, honestly, is how we would need to present it to folks mm-hmm. in, in a pastoral space is to, sure. to explain it. You have to understand the context. And, and um, I, I think, again, reminding them that you need to take the breadth of the scripture and not just pull out this one piece alone mm-hmm. and use it to, to base your whole faith on. You have to use this whole space. And when, when you do that, then this makes more sense. And it also loses some of its harshness mm-hmm. within the context. And I also think it, I also think it reminds us that that Jesus is fully human, and so he has, you know, he 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 responds and reacts within the entirety of the human. human well, ability. and 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 I think you know, as I said before, you know, Jesus had this understanding that his his ministry was directed primarily to the Jewish people. Right. I think we're meant to understand that, especially in Matthew's gospel, as his sense of calling and right. mission from right. God. Right. So this was not something he chose. This was something that was, right. you know, that was given to him that he was to take the message to the to the to, to the people of Israel right. first. Right. And and you know Paul even picks this up right. with right. his language of to the first Jew to first, the Jews, then, then to, to the, the Gentiles. Gentiles. Right. Yep. Yep. Um, and and so. Um, 
there is a natural kind of progression in that, and that makes some sense. Mm-hmm. And if again, if we read what Jesus is saying here from that standpoint of, you know, Jesus was acting out his calling from God. You know, yes, he was divine. Yes, he was human, but he was still also uh, the servant of God, mm-hmm. and he was seeking to be obedient to God in everything he did. And if he felt that God had put this limitation on him, that he was to go first and primarily to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, mm-hmm. then I, again, I think that also gives us some context for understanding I think so. what he yeah, says. Yeah, well. yeah, it it does make some. It it, it does. It absolutely makes sense. Um, and. Uh, I, I think that's what we have to leave it at. It's just, that's, it makes sense in, in the context. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. All right. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.